HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. having fun. <laughs> I can't hear myself. Welcome. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where brunch is being served. And by the way, later on, there is a massive tent in the back, and there is a absolutely banging party planned for the Super Bowl. So if you don't have anything to do, I suggest you come down to 261 Moore Street. Um, my guest today is Timothy Pachira, who is an assistant professor of politics at the New School, and his book, which absolutely riveted me, is called Every 12 Seconds, Industrialized Slaughter and the Politics of Sight. This was published by Yale University Press just at the end of last year, I guess, right? Right. And a little description of it, this is from the press release, through his vivid narrative, and I mean vivid, folks, uh, (laughs) and ethnographic approach, Pachirat brings to life massive routine killing from the perspective of those who take part in it. He shows how surveillance and sequestration operate within the slaughterhouse and in its its interactions with the community at large. He also considers how society is organized to distance and hide uncomfortable realities from view. Well, that is very true. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time in this country trying to hide the things that we don't like. I mean, prisons are pretty much hidden and, uh, you know, unpleasant uh, activities like slaughtering uh, animals are hidden and, you know, mental hospitals are hidden. I mean, there's a lot of places you could have gone with this. Right. Now, the overarching theme of the book is is how we distance ourselves from those unpleasant things. So why is that a bad thing, though, Tim? I mean, what's wrong with that? I don't really want to see that stuff. Do you? That's a great question. Uh, part, of the, part of the trajectory of the book starts with uh, a theorist named Norbert Elias, who sort of 
characterizes civilization, <clears throat> not as a re- removal or elimination of what we find distasteful, but rather it's hiding away from sight. And there's a lot of things that are simply repugnant that we don't want to see. Um, this book is not really a blanket argument for making everything transparent, but rather uh, an attempt to investigate those areas that we keep hidden that implicate us in relations of domination or power or exploitation over others. And so that is why uh, the slaughterhouse was a salient case. That is the perfect, actually the perfect example, although the prisons are pretty good for that too, I would think. <laughs> Yes. Uh, power and control. I mean, you can't get too much more intense than a prison, but then I guess you wouldn't really necessarily want to be a prisoner in order to do a book like this, right? Correct. So yeah. there was the issue of access, but there's also the issue of um, applicability. You know, when you yeah. talk about prisons, many people can distance themselves from that and say, I don't support that. I'm not involved in that. When it comes to food uh, and meat in particular, everyone has a relationship with it. Even those who choose not to eat meat do so self-consciously as a rejection of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So it's rhetorically very useful uh, for sort of raising issues about distance and concealment and power that people might otherwise uh, disclaim any involvement in. Absolutely. So when you, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started on this project and, and how you, you know, what it was like to try to get hired and sort of the difficulties that you encountered just in the basic thing. Because I mean, I must say the beginning of the book, it was almost sort of comical, the sort of, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me, <laughs> yeah. attitude, you know, feeling of like sitting in that trailer waiting for, you know, Juan or whatever his name was, uh, or Javier to, to come in and give you the nod. So give us a little description of that. Sure. Um, so I moved uh, to Omaha. Uh, after mapping every slaughterhouse in the United States that employs over 500 people. Uh, I wanted to work in a large slaughterhouse. I also knew I wanted to work in a slaughterhouse located in an urban location. Um, Most slaughterhouses, industrialized slaughterhouses in the U.S. today are located in rural areas, far out of the sight of urban populations. Um, I didn't want that sort of easy answer to the question of how is it that we keep these things hidden, right? So I wanted to pick a slaughterhouse that was located smack dab in the middle of a city, And Omaha is one of the few places that still has a large concentration of uh, massive slaughterhouses. Um, After moving there, uh, I really had no guarantee that I would be um, hired in the plant. I did know I wanted to enter as an entry-level worker rather than as a guest of management or in some other capacity. Um, I looked at some of the literature by anthropologists and sociologists who had entered slaughterhouses from above, if you will, with the permission of management. And these people were essentially given what's known as the catwalk tour, which is uh, a metal railing high above the the plant that people can walk on and sort of be pointed out different things. Um, There was uh, one anthropologist who did manage to get uh, onto the line as a worker with the permission of management um, on the assumption that he would then report back to management about how the work could be made even more efficient, about how even more could be squeezed out of the workers. So it was very important for the, for the purposes of my research um, to enter into the plant as an entry-level worker uh, without informing management of my, of my research intentions. And to do that, uh, I basically showed up in person um, at, at several of the slaughterhouses in the city, not knowing which one I would get into, and essentially uh, went through the application process, which involves uh, showing up very early in the morning and waiting around in a trailer. Uh, at the time that I was applying, which was in June of 2004, there were probably uh, around 30 other applicants waiting for jobs in the trailer, and it was a very tense sort of environment. Everybody wanted the work, um, and they were hiring very few people each day. 
Uh, the people who got hired first were the people with knife skills. Um, I was coming from an academic background and had no knife skills beyond. Yeah, you but know. you didn't tell them that. I no. Mean, you just acted like you were some poor, you know, dumb slob who had just pulled up in Omaha and needed work. Yeah, I, I don't mean, know how about did you, uh, I mean, looking dumb, at you but. now, how did you, um, <laughs> you know, you don't really present as kind of the downtrodden, you know, worker, which is sort of what one anticipates in slaughterhouse work. That sure. it's going to be somebody who's, you know, an immigrant or who comes from, uh, you know, less educated background. I mean, your face radiates intelligence. I mean, <laughs> well, thank you. you know, <laughs> well, but and, you know, so. So how did you, it's amazing to me that they didn't just take one look at you and say, okay, Sonny. <laughs> right. <laughs> hit well, the, hit the skid. There's pal. a couple autobiographical things here that, that worked in my favor, right? I actually am an immigrant uh, to this country. I grew up in Thailand. Um, I have brown skin. You know, I, I code. Light brown. Light brown. Thank you. I code as a, as, a, as a minority of types. In fact, most people in the slaughterhouse uh, on first glance at me thought I was from Mexico, thought I was Mexican and were incredulous to learn that I you, wasn't. Right? I mean, you look Asian to me, not right. so much Mexican, but right. you know, I guess if you're not looking too hard. <laughs> I had a lot of anxiety about these questions when I applied, right? It's sort of, uh, are my clothes going to give me away? Is my language going to give me away? Are the words I use going to give me away? And actually, you know, um, uh, people see you in a very specific frame when you're, when you're entering into that kind of situation. And given the fact that I, that I am a, an immigrant, that I did have some background in manual labor, so I've worked uh, on a cattle ranch before, I've worked um, building trusses for houses before, uh, these aspects of my of my past um, didn't have to be fabricated, uh, and uh, I was very much uh, in line with the picture of what of what the slaughterhouse thought of as 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 labor. I think it's interesting that in two thousand four that la- that it was such a tight um, squeeze to get a job, and you know even before the crash. Yeah, what's interesting here is that uh, even jobs that are so undesirable from the point of view of native-born Americans, so. Uh, in the slaughterhouse, the only native-born Americans who were working in the entry-level positions were people who were on work uh, release uh, from, from prison sentences. So this was a very undesirable job for a native, native-born, native-speaking American. But, but uh, for those who come to this country uh, without language, um, it's, it, it's one of the few entry-level entry jobs that are available that provide some sort of consistent employment. And so there was uh, uh, some competition for those jobs. Amazing. One of the things that um, you described so well is the level of noise. Mm. Um, the noise factor in a slaughtering plant is really ex- kind of extraordinary. Um, and, and, you, and the smell. The two, you yes. know, you really, the sensory experience is so clearly delineated in the book. It was really well done. Um, and, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm just saying hi to Patrick's mom. Um, and uh, I thought that, uh, you know, when you talk about how it's, it's about coming in with no language skills, it's, it is sort of the perfect job because you really, there's no way, there's no forum for conversation. There's really only a place for humor. I mean, you describe like, you know, lobbing clumps of fat at each other and, you know, whatever other hijinks one gets up to in a right. slaughterhouse, which is just like so weird. I mean, but I want to go back to a second to something else you said just now about how um, American, native-born and English-speaking Americans perceive the work of a slaughterhouse as something that they don't want to do. And um, 
you know, I really have to wonder about that. I mean, I, the perception of, of that kind of work, yes, it's unpleasant, but I was thinking about it in the context of other types of unpleasant mm-hmm. work. There are so many gross jobs mm-hmm. out there. Um, working in a slaughtering facility seems like just kind of one of, of many. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to um, be laying asphalt, for instance, which I would consider mm-hmm. equally dirty, dangerous, um, incredibly hard, mm-hmm. physically challenging work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. There's working in a prison system. I would hate that even mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. than, you know, than killing animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that struck me about the book is that you you make a lot about the fact that they're killing animals, mm-hmm. and yes, they are killing them every 12 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the, that's sort of what the country demands. I mean, I don't think that's bad, necessarily. I, I felt like you were, you had kind of an agenda about that. And I was curious, like, does it, you know, you're not a meat eater, or you don't think people should eat meat, or... I was just wondering because it seemed like a, a theme that came back again and again. They're, you know, the killing floor mm. and the killing, mm. and people don't get that they're killing people and we're sequestered from. And I think it's good that people are separated from mm. that. Actually, mm. in the job, you mm. don't think so? Uh, let me go back to an earlier earlier point, and then I'll address what you just said about the desirability of the job from a from a native Amer- uh, native born American's point of view. Um, I think on the whole, in our society, the jobs that are typically uh, the most dangerous and the most dirty also tend to be the least well-paid and the least well-compensated. Um, and if we look at the history of meatpacking work in the United States, uh, it used to be uh, that, these, that these jobs were actually highly desirable uh, because they were protected by unions um, and they paid wages that allowed for uh, a, a decent middle-class sort of income. Um, but uh, with, the, with the movement of slaughterhouses out of urban areas to rural areas and the shift to sort of boxed beef production uh, models, there was also a, a massive sort of destruction of union protections across these shops. I did want to ask you about unions, actually. Which I, is, your shop was not unionized. No, it was not unionized. Uh, and in fact, there was a high level of intimidation against any sort of organization um, in, the, in the slaughterhouses in Omaha in general. Mm. Um, but to, now to address your, your question about killing, why the focus on killing, um, the, that, that is very much a focus of the book. Uh, the work of killing is something that I wanted to understand. Uh, how is it, what does it mean from the perspective of lived experience to carry out the, the killing of animals on a routinized, industrialized uh, basis? One of the stories that the book opens with uh, is about a cow that escaped uh, from a slaughterhouse up the street from the one that I was working in. Uh, and yeah, this that was cow, really, that was so painful. This cow, you know, ran down uh, one of the main boulevards in Omaha and took a turn, uh, which led it to be cornered sort of against the chain link fence that bordered the slaughterhouse that I was working in. And this cow was uh, being pursued by the Omaha Police Department. And um, it so happened that uh, all of this took place during the 10 minute afternoon break for the slaughterhouse uh, that I was working in. So a lot of the workers were outside uh, and witnessed the police open fire on the animal with shotguns, right, and sort of uh, killed it. Uh, and, and the next day in the lunchroom, the conversation around the killing of this cow was filled with sort of vituperative disgust and horror uh, at, the, at the actual killing of this animal, right? And what happens is uh, the lunch bell rings to signal the end of lunch, and we all get up and go back Uh, to our jobs where we are contributing to the killing of 2,500 of these animals per day. Um, So yes, I do believe that there is something significant to the act of taking life and and the ways in which that work is structured and organized to allow even the people who participate in it to be distanced from it 
to, to disassociate from what they're doing is very much one of the central themes of the book. No question about that. And I actually um, disagree with you that those who uh, consume meat in general should be shielded from seeing uh, what happens in the slaughterhouse. Um, I think that uh, one of the real questions of the book is what happens uh, to the way we think about these practices if we begin to collapse some of the distances that shield us from having to confront um, the realities that they demand. Well, do you think that the industrial model would change if people were more conscious of the actual act of slaughtering animals and, and cutting them up? I mean, do you think that people's relationship to eating meat would change? Uh, I think that it's an open question, but I think for many people being forced to confront that, not just uh, through writing or visually, but experientially through all of the five senses would lead to uh, a pretty significant transformation in their relationship or their understanding of meat. Um, Temple Grandin, uh, who, we, who we talked about before this show, um, is a big advocate of uh, turning all slaughterhouses into uh, glass walls, as it yes. were through electronic right uh, transmission of images, live electronic transmission yeah, of images this, over the internet. She wants a video, a, right. a live stream video audit at all times right. on all plants. To where any member of the public could click on a plant and be able to view what was happening on the kill floor um, at any time. Contrast that, Katie, with laws that are now being uh, pushed forward in at least six states, uh, so-called ag-gag laws, which make it a felony. Uh, to enter into a slaughterhouse or other animal facility with the express intention of revealing what's going on in that slaughterhouse. There is absolutely something going on here around uh, distancing and concealment as a way for people to continue uh, uh, unreflexive or unthoughtful uh, consumption of meat. And here again, I think we can, be, we can also be metaphorical and think of other types of uh, uh, violent work in society that are shielded from view and therefore uh, permitted to continue without more significant deliberation. I would agree with you there. I mean, I'm I'm also a big fan of of Temple's uh, you know mandate to to bring in that third party video audit stream mm -hmm. and really force uh, the meatpacking industry to disclose everything that they're doing mm -hmm. because I mean I think it's been very unfortunate for them in terms of their public relations um, the way they have kept that very opaque wall up and have been so extremely um, you know reluctant to allow any media into their facilities I mean just I mean when I was we were talking earlier about that tour that I took um, last year or the year before in, in the Cargill plant that came about because I raised a fuss mm -hmm. I was on a on a trip with a bunch of chefs that was sponsored by Food Arts Magazine and and um, and they wouldn't let me or my managing editor into the slaughterhouse mm -hmm. and I raised such a stink mm -hmm. with certified Angus beef that they ended up bringing mm -hmm. me back mm -hmm. and getting Temple to mm -hmm. come and be my guide mm -hmm. and making it all very nice for me. Right. Um, so there was, I mean, they perceived me as being a friendly, I mean, I try to present myself as somebody who's not into, you know, being a muckraker for them. And right. I, you know, and I don't want to be. I mean, I right. think that, that the slaughtering industry has, has evolved into what it is today because Americans want to consume cheap meat. Mm -hmm. And it really boils down to whether or not we're going to give up our McDonald's addiction. That's right. And, uh, you know, when people stop buying McDonald's hamburgers or Taco Bell or the rest of the fast food chain that largely supports right. what's going on in industrialized slaughter, um, then 
you know, slaughtering plants are going to have to take uh, a step back and, and do what the consumer wants. Sure. Although when we talk about cheap meat, we need to account for all the other costs that are hidden in, in the low price of oh, meat, well, right? Of course, so for yeah. example, the huge corn subsidies that sure, go the into environmental allowing costs. for oh. uh, the cattle to be fed in a certain way. Absolutely. The environmental costs, the costs uh, that we externalize to the workers, um, and the costs in terms of the infliction of absolutely uh, unnecessary suffering and pain on the animals themselves. Yes. And, that's, you know, and this brings me back to your, to your question which I you know, want to address more directly about uh, uh, the eating of meat, right? Do I advocate it? Do I not advocate it? I think here what I really want to get across is um, there is absolutely something that happens in the act of, of taking another life. Uh, and the current industrialized meat production model allows people to consume meat without personally confronting that something, and I think the answer for each person is likely to be different in the act of confrontation, right? But to be able to uh, consume meat without even having to confront that collapse of distance is something that I think is deeply problematic. And it goes beyond just the e- economics of purchasing meat cheaply. There's also a psychological or phenomenological sort of distancing that goes on there that allows for the avoidance of that basic confrontation. And I think that's something that I would like to challenge. Tim, you are a rock star. Jack, we're going to take a quick sponsor drop here. 30 seconds. We'll be right back with Timothy Pachirat, author of Every 12 Seconds. Sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides, and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com. We're back. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And with me in the studio today is Timothy Pachirat, who is an associate professor of politics at the New School and the author of an absolutely fantastically interesting and revealing book called Every 12 Seconds, um, published by Yale University Press. Um, Tim, we were just talking about making um, people more aware of the bargain, essentially, the moral bargain that they're making when they consume meat. And um, I really thought that, I mean, that is sort of what the book is all about, is trying to get people to to recognize what it is that they're participating in. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's, um, I think that's a really important aspect. But I will say that there is a lot of, um, okay, so if you take away the industrialized component of eating meat, I'm going to veer right off my show outline here. (laughs) Um, And What's happening now that I see in the sort of alternative food movement, if you will, is that if it comes from an earthy, crunchy place and it's a happy, happy cow and it goes to a happy, happy, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't think any slaughterhouse, I don't care. In fact, according to Temple, smaller is not necessarily better in terms of animal protocols. And I I think that's probably true. Um, But 
if you know can you can you justify in other words i'm saying that people are justifying their consumption of meat because they're only buying it from the happy place and it's you know 25 dollars a steak instead of two and you know like that kind of thing so where, where do you fall in that spectrum of okay you're really you're really pushing me here to, to sort of uh say more about uh my own relationship to to meat and to animals i think you know to take it even one step further we can look at uh these sort of meet your meat uh, programs where you pay, for example, $300 in order to uh, spend a day in upstate New York. Um, I have not heard of this. Oh, really? Yeah. I have a, I have a ha- student at the new school who's oh. actually doing field work on this. Cool. Uh, we have to talk about this after the show. Sure. Okay. But um, basically, this is uh, where people are taken to the farms and introduced to the to the steer or the or the pig that they're going to be eating later that evening, perhaps. And they, they witness it being killed and butchered uh, on site. And this is sort of the inverse, right, of the industrialized slaughterhouse model where everything is hidden from sight. Here you actually have people paying a premium, $300, in order to witness uh, what it means for, for the animal to be killed. Is this up at Fleischer's? Yes, that's one, okay, one yeah. of the locations. Yeah, I have yeah. heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, I think the question here is what happens in that moment of collapsing distance? There's a lot of assumptions that are made both by animal rights advocates and by the industry itself that if people were ever to witness this, they would shut down and never want to eat meat again. And I think this is really one of the things that's open to question, right? It's not necessarily clear what happens when things become visible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a whole realm of politics, which I call a politics of sight, that's predicated on the assumption that if we could just make X or Y visible, there would be a massive political uprising or massive political movement to try to transform that. And that's the other side of the coin from sequestration, which is about surveillance and transparency, a sort of the WikiLeaks model, right? Like if we just let the public know what's going on, all of this will definitely come to an end. And that's, uh, that's a tension that I also want to call into question. I think that's very simplistic. Uh, and Me it's, too. And, and, and one of the points that I make uh, through the ethnography, through the fieldwork in the, in the book, is that even when things are completely transparent and visible, you can still have a continuation of sort of uh, practices uh, that, that would, you might otherwise consider abhorrent. Visibility alone is not a sufficient condition uh, for transformation of repugnant practices. Definitely not. I mean, you pointed that out when you were giving that story earlier about the cow that escaped and the police, you know, barraged it with, with fire from their rifles, whereas, and, the, and the workers were horrified because they perceived that as an inhumane way of slaughtering the animal as opposed to what they've become inured to, which is knocking it with the bolt. Mm-hmm. Right? right, so they think of they perceive that as the best way of doing their job, and then, as you point out throughout the book, you know er, the the animal is so quickly stripped into its sort of large primal cuts, as right. it were, right. that it's no longer perceived as a living animal. Right. And you know, I, I personally think that that's the only way you could. I mean, aside from the imperative of the economic imperative of of killing and mm-hmm. processing twenty five hundred or forty five hundred cattle mm-hmm. a day, whatever your mm-hmm. plant chain speed is, um, you know, it's also best, I think, for your mental health if you don't have this like vision of the I mean one of the things that I remember the chefs talking about when we were mm-hmm. um, doing that plant tour mm-hmm. and which you describe also in your book which I mean every single thing you described I recognized from when I mm-hmm. went on the tour they didn't hide anything mm-hmm. from me which I really appreciated um, but that that line of the heads moving across right. the chain that I mean people who have never been to a slaughterhouse don't realize but right away the you know the head is taken off of the animal's carcass and then bits of that are are rendered but but it's it starts out with the head 
these this line of skinned heads rolling across a higher up uh, sort of level right. of of Shame. the of the rail, and um, it is a really most unnerving sight. There's no question about that. And right. for the chefs who went on this tour, they all came back and basically to a man, that was the thing that really rocked them. Hmm. Like the rest of it, no big deal because they'd right. all worked with big pieces of animals. Some right. of them had already been using right. whole animals in their kitchens and whatnot. But when you get a whole animal in your kitchen, it's a different story. It's yeah. like you know, it's yeah. got the head and the tail is yeah. taken off, the feet have been clipped, all yeah. of that jazz. Um, there's a there's a kind of grotesque aesthetic to the to the con- the massive concentration at this level and scale of taking of life. And when you see the heads all together uh, in a single line, you begin to understand what some of that means. Uh, but you're absolutely right in terms of the compartmentalization. Uh, my first job in the slaughterhouse was hanging livers in the cooler, right. where I stood for nine to ten hours a day, uh, basically taking freshly eviscerated livers off an overhead line and hanging them on a cart to be chilled. My main sort of challenge in that job was not with a confrontation with the taking of animal life. It was with the sheer monotony and boredom and physical demands of the job. Well, and the speed uh, with which you had to accomplish it correctly. Right, and I, right. that, that leads me to my next um, question, actually. One of the most discouraging aspects of this book was your detailed analysis of how food safety and especially animal welfare protocols are circumvented by the chain speed, by the imperative to kill a cow every 12 seconds. Um, what what do you think I mean how, how can that be changed what's gonna I don't know I mean I'm not even sure what I'm saying here but it's <laughs> like you know that just you know that whole sort of uh, the, the challenge of, of process of doing your work as quickly as you can and the fact that it doesn't really allow you to do the tasks that you are supposed to do that either guarantee the animal's welfare or indeed guarantee public safety um, you know through better inspections you were a quality control inspector mm-hmm. why don't you talk a little bit about what that was like sure um, I mean, first off, I think there's a bit of a paradox in, in talking about animal welfare in the context of slaughter, right? But, but I think we can all agree, uh, whether we think that animals should be slaughtered for food or not, that there are more and less painful ways uh, for those animals to move through the slaughterhouse. And certainly at the line speeds that we're talking about here, uh, it, it does not maximize the, the possibility that these animals are, are, are experiencing as little pain and suffering as possible. Yeah, I mean, one of the protocols that, for instance, Temple Grand and her auditing system, uh, you know, cow vocalizations have to be kept to a minimum, the number of cow, a cow that goes down. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the hog industry, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of controversy in the pork industry right now because of the excessive use of ractoptamine, mm-hmm. the, the drug that causes them to, like, tremble and mm-hmm. fall down all the time, mm-hmm. and then you can't slaughter a downer animal mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. So right. all of that is part of that chain speed imperative. Right. But what happens sort of with these auditing systems is there's one picture that's presented uh, when inspectors are present or when uh, there's overt sort of inspection going on and quite another reality that takes place day in and day out. Uh, And here it's very tempting for people to place blame on the individual workers Mm -hmm. who are carrying out these sort of uh, very cruel uh, practices. For example, the indiscriminate use of cattle prods uh, on the animals. And yet, as I show in the book, um, there's a whole series of nested pressures that really originate uh, with the consumer who demands, as we said already, uh, cheap meat, cheap in quotes, like not looking at, at the true costs of it. Right. And that sort of pressure is passed down to the kill floor managers who then pass it down to the workers who know that they will be fired if they do not keep a steady stream of cattle moving through the plant at a certain rate. That's right. And this holds true as well for the food and ins- uh, safety inspection regime, right? Where uh, officially our job as quality control workers was to keep the food safe. 
Unofficially, though, it was to run interference against USDA inspectors and keep them from noticing any problems in the plant that might cause them to slow or shut down the line. What were some of those problems? Uh, the main problem with food safety is uh, fecal matter uh, on the hides. Uh, you're removing uh, hides from cattle and trying to keep fecal matter off of uh, from being transferred from the hides onto the carcasses. Uh, and at the at this kind of line speed, uh, it's extremely difficult to do. But even though they, I mean, they cabinet wash them now, and they use lactic acid, and they have all these neutralizing uh, potions that they spray all over the carcass. Yeah, but the standard for food safety is still zero tolerance for the presence of any fecal matter on the on the carcasses, uh, whether it's been sprayed with lactic acid or not. Right. Um, it is true that uh, that we suffer about seventy thousand cases a year of E. coli poisoning in this country. I did look that up. Mm-hmm. Um, and 41% of those are transmitted by ground beef. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly an ongoing issue, although I think it's probably better than it was 10 or 15 years ago because mm-hmm. they didn't have all of those interventions then. Mm-hmm. And even in an imperfect system, as you describe, it's it's working better than it has in the past. What do you think they could do short of of slowing down that chain speed? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean how know. slow would it have to be for, for consumers to feel really protected? Here I'm going to have to, you know, come back to the main focus of my book, which is about the work of killing. I'm actually much less interested in making recommendations about how to make meat safer and much more interested in having people uh, reason morally about what it means to take a sentient being's life in order to, uh, in order to eat. Um, and so here I'd like to return the focus not so much to what, what can we do to, to make the food safe, but rather what does it mean that we are, you know, in this country at least, slaughtering uh, close to 10 billion animals per year uh, in such a way that not once are we forced to confront the reality of what that might actually mean for the animals or for the workers who are requiring to do that work on our behalf. Well, you're really discouraging me. You're just a total buzzkill, man, because I do love a great steak. (laughs) Unfortunately, it looks like... We're out of time, too, which really is sad, but I hope you'll come back another time, to. Tim. I'd love to. Um, you're a wonderful person to debate this issue with, and it would be fun to have another like industry person in here with us That'd or something great. like that, sure. right? So um, again, folks, my guest uh, is Timothy Pachirat, who is the author of Every 12 Seconds. This has been an episode of Straight No Chaser. And um, next week, what am I doing next week? I have something very cool next week. Um, I think it might be Jim Gerritsen, who is part of the Organic uh, Seed Growers and Trade Association. Um, but if it's not him, well, we'll let you know. It'll be a surprise. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us today, Tim. Thanks it's for really having been me. a pleasure. Thank you to Jack, and thank you to my sponsor. And we'll see you next week on Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.